0: I feel like I just saw you because I watched your talk. Um, right. And my goal was to also read the paper, but I didn't get that far. Welcome to Dancecast. I'm your host, Seema Belmar. Today I'm talking with Paige Morgan Johnson, assistant professor of performance and race in the Department of Theater at Barnard College. Paige received her PhD in performance studies with a designated emphasis in women. Gender and Sexuality from UC Berkeley. Paige is a Black American researcher from Alabama whose academic journey began at Columbia University as a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow where she became interested in movement, gender, and performance in the context of Hidra culture in South India. Her senior year, she was awarded a Fulbright to Indonesia, where she found herself in a home in a neighborhood with a large population of trans women. As she got to know members of this community, known broadly as Wadia, though Paige will Nuance that term for us during our conversation. Her interest blossomed into a doctoral project on the intersections of queerness and performance in Indonesia that thinks about the relationship between queerness, queer communities, and the arts. I learned so much from this conversation. I'm very excited to share it with you. So you mentioned that you were homestaying in a neighborhood mm-hmm. that had a lot of, and you said trans women. And then mm-hmm. I listened to the talk you gave at MPAC last year, last, last 2021. Year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With our buddy, Ashley Farah Murray, shout out. Someone asked at the end to more clearly define the term warrior. You explained that mm-hmm. warrior is like a portmanteau word. Break that down a teeny bit. There are a couple of things I think
1: that help sort of set up an understanding of how like slippery transposing a particular Western set of identities and categorizations are within this space. And so one is knowing that Bahasa as the official national language is essentially only established In like 1945, you know, we are dealing with a massive archipelago with a massive amount of individual cultures and languages and dialects. And so, you know, there was a kind of top down attempt by the state to establish one national language. So the language is new in certain senses and still sort of deals with mixing in Javanese and then the multiple dialects of Javanese or Sundanese or Bugis or Balinese. All of these Mm. languages are still very much community village home languages. So with the term waria, it's an identifier that was sort of established by the governor of Jakarta in 1967. And it was established as essentially trying to create a less pejorative, commonly used word that newspapers would use, that the state would use, NGOs would use. And so it's a combination, it's a portmanteau of Juanita and Priya. So Juanita being the Bahasa word for woman, Priya being one of the words for men. You have this In many ways, like didactic (laughs) combination of words that is what it says. But where things also get tricky is that there are no individual words, no word for he, no word for she, all the same word. You know, you establish an understanding of how to address someone's gender really through what they do or through relationality. So someone is, you know, someone's father, someone's daughter, someone's wife. That it's those accompanying pieces of language that sort of establish in some ways one's relationality as holding a type of primacy over one's like embodied sexual status. That's sort of a cultural thing that's just at play that gets very slippery within language when I am working with members of the Waria community, trans and particularly transgender as a term versus transvestite, which is what you sort of see a lot, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s, but transgender, which is really coming through, again, this kind of national NGO discourse. And there's a scholar, Benjamin Hegarty, who writes a lot about this modernity and language and how these wider sort of medical discourses interface with essentially what terms get taken up. I tend to, in my work, slide between using waria or using gender non-conforming, particularly for artists like Aunt Neil, who the Impact Talk was in conversation with, Didiq Niniq Tolok, who's a, um, a very famous choreographer and dancer um, who's sort of had like an international profile really since the 70s, who's very cagey about, in many ways, settling on pronouns or an identifier. And that happens... A lot. Wadia has a meaning. It has attachments to it and Mm -hmm. that's enough, which is why I tend to use it mostly in the writing. When I'm speaking to a Western audience, I use trans and mostly in the umbrella sense as a way of of at least sort of establishing that a part of what's being dealt with is a non-fixity within a sort of binary. Some wadia will refer to themselves as transsexual, transvestite, transgender. You also get the more sort of local words that come in. There are many categorical designations within a broader landscape that is wadia. You know, you might have wadia who are bugis and they'll say, no, you know, I'm chalalai. That is a different... Boogie's term that in many ways means the same thing. Someone who was declared male at birth, but who maybe lives, who presents themselves as female within their daily life. So depending upon whether they're home with family or maybe living within like a diasporic community in another larger city might float between waria and chalalai or waria in another word. I find myself mostly guided by what is expressed to me. I have had particularly like younger artists say, it doesn't matter. I'm Indonesian. I'm human. In some ways, how this vocabulary circulates in relationship to
0: what genres are being picked up, what's being performed. Perfect segue. The talk that I listened to, and then I watched a pretty big chunk of a film. I don't know how much longer that film is. I think it's only about an hour. Okay. So we watched about a half hour, right? Of it. Mm -hmm. And we have this artist that you're working with whose name is Aunt Neil. What's the, mm-hmm. their full name? Aunt Neil Tasman. The film traces, in a sense, the art, uh, Aunt Neil's biographical journey to becoming a Lenger dancer, like or a practitioner of Lenger, because it is, is that originally or ostensibly, whatever, a female performance form, or are there male and female roles in it? Again,
1: it's one of those kind of tricky language things because Lenger, the term itself, specifically means a female social dancer. So a female who dances in front of typically a male audience and socially interacts. There isn't this sort of courtly space of separation, but it's also sort of been now conflated with like a particular style from the Banyuwangi region of East Java. Within this space, Aunt Neil would be a linger. There are a couple of different genres of dance that a linger would do. Okay. I think it's totally correct to say that this film sort of follows Aunt Neil's journey into being a lingere a linger in terms of a practitioner of these types of folk um, social dance practices. Now, whose body? is associated? What type of body is associated with this dance? That becomes a really interesting question. We have this moment within Indonesian history, 1965, where we have the movement from essentially one 20-year presidency to a 30-year presidency from Sukarno to Suharto. And that moment of shift is marked by extreme violence. Millions were killed, millions were disappeared. Then there's this sort of national campaign of forgetting. And one of the origin stories about like how the conflict started is this idea that um, there's a group called Gerwani, which was like a women social political group and that these women attacked a group of generals, beheaded them, and then danced around the space in which this happened.
0: Okay, this is like lore
1: or like so documented? It's, it's, That's intense. There's so little actual documentation. And so much of documentation was just purely state controlled essentially from the 60s until 99. What we do know is that this kicked off a sort of campaign of violence against artists, against female artists in particular, female dancers were highly affected. This has a lot to do with the political landscape at the time, sort of who gets associated with communism, which is very much about these village practices, village modes of disseminating knowledge. But this sort of becomes like the official story. Along with that, what we end up having over the next 20 years, so really through the 70s into about the mid 80s, is the state decides there needs to be a top-down,
0: state-controlled, what they call upgrading. Yeah. You mentioned that in the in the talk. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it was one of those things where, you know, my mind was thinking about the Cold War U.S. Mm -hmm. cultural ambassadorships of like Martha Graham or, right? And then I think Alvin Ailey was a cultural ambassador maybe Mm -hmm. later. So it's a little bit in that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely
1: following that model of, you know, what arts are going to represent Indonesia as a nation to other nations? What's going to be what's representative of Indonesia? There was this mass campaign campaign to essentially send government workers across the archipelago, record all of the different arts and anything that was considered essentially not in line with a kind of Javanese idea of
0: proper public practice Mm -hmm. gets shut down or reworked. What's so complicated and interesting about this is that Mm -hmm. it's like sort of in the form of a, like a Russian nesting doll where Mm -hmm. all these sort of binaries that get set up are kind of like set up by the state but are also inside the genres because you were talking about coarse versus what was the word you used course versus refined right um mm-hmm. but that there are actual choreographies of coarseness and of refinement within a particular form right yes mm-hmm. and so then the state might come in and try to like Smooth out the course or remove the course parts? Yes. Wow. Yeah.
1: Like maybe make the course like a little less course, mm-hmm. right? You know, maybe there's now no interaction with an audience and it's really about oh. like a viewing audience versus like a participatory audience. And that becomes oh, really important for forms like what a Linger dancer do So, you know, the state is like, mm, if you're a dancer, but like you're collecting money while you dance and people are maybe drinking and maybe there's like a little sexual interplay and also possibly the sort of rumor of prostitution or availability after a performance, all of that's got to go.
0: Hmm. And
1: we, we will take the essence of what this form is and heighten it. A little bit. So make the costumes better. Maybe not as revealing or as tight. That's this campaign of upgrading that you sort of keep a little bit, but you try to make it in line with national values. And national values at this time are really trying to refocus on like the heteronormative family. The woman's place is within the home, not as like a money earner, which is had very much been the case across the archipelago. That also sort of made its way into what was sort of thought about as arts that were worth investing in and saving and then sort of re-perpetuating across the archipelago and sort of what needed to be swept under the rug. When you have something like Lenguer, which has this... Foundation, when that type of dancing figure has a foundation within the sort of social dance world, the older roots of that being narratives around um, the Lingare as like a fertility figure, these types of dances would be set up around crop harvests or around plantings. This is when you get into kind of really interesting, tricky stuff around gender, because what I am still working to get. An archival basis for, because a lot of the writing, particularly around like early arts practices are Dutch travel journals and things of that nature. A lot of other information was sort of either oral traditions or social political upheaval within the 60s, a lot of things were destroyed, new schools were established to teach the arts in alignment with these state ideals. So, you know, I might hear from one person that yes, Lingare was a form that was originally practiced by those assigned male at birth, but they would be sort of dressed in feminine ways and that it was the combination of these two sort of energies that provided, you know, a certain sense of fertility and potency around this dance. And Mm. that's why it would be done as a village dance at this time, at this place versus other narratives that are like, oh no, it was always performed by those assigned female at birth. That typically younger women, um, sometimes girl children who are virgins, impart to connect to some of these fertility discourses. And then it got sanitized. It becomes more of like right. a presentational style dance versus a participatory style dance. You know, these are the, uh, types of competing narratives that are repeated across many different genres, across many different cultural spaces within the archipelago. Sort of this sense of whose body gets associated with what forms in its purest beginnings. I'm really curious about what this moment of the state really taking a hold of shaping not only what the arts look like going forward, but shaping understandings of the past of these forms. What does that sort of open up for either occluded histories of more gender fluid presentational genres and forms, or does this sort of covering of certain histories, does that then open space for maybe claiming of narratives of, you know, we've always existed as non-binary identifying folks in Indonesia. And I can prove that by saying we've always been involved in this genre. And then mm. it just changed because the state changed. And so much of Aunt Neil's work is about. And Altnil as someone who's from that region, who identifies as someone from Banyuwangi, which, you know, is where this particular form hail comes from, who is really using this sort of journey with Lingare to not only try to grapple with their own sort of identity in the present, but also to claim a space of the past, right? To claim a space of cultural origins that isn't just about like regionality, but saying, you know, someone
0: like me has always done this form. People can point Mm -hmm. to like, oh, in Shakespeare, it was all men. And so they had to play women's roles. And like, I don't tend to hear that there has always been some kind of performance genre and people who were gender fluid mm-hmm. and behaving in these ways. And then the state came and tried to erase that. That feels very specific to the place. What's so fascinating about Aunt Neil's work from what I saw and, and your discussion yeah. of it is this returning to his childhood, to the, his personal origin story, and then mm-hmm. mapping that onto an imagined or possibly true origin story for the form, for Langer, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And then also the way that, from my viewing vantage point of the film... They're moving through natural environments by riverbanks, maybe among rice paddies. Is that what those mm-hmm. tiered? Yeah. Yep. Into internal spaces, uh, domestic spaces. I remember one was of their, not mentor, mentor? No, their mm-hmm. elder. The oldest living lingare at that time. And then through the marketplace, right? And mm-hmm. I think so, you know, when it yep. opens, we watch Aunt Neil watching women Langer dancing. Mm -hmm. What's the name of the scarf kind of thing? Um, It's
1: it's a a slendang. Slendang. Is the yeah the and you see that across like many forms the use of like the scarf as like a move a gestural sort of extension for the dancer. Yes,
0: the knees are bent. There's stepping patterns. A lot of Mm -hmm. wrist and elbow work. I mean, I'm, I'm being really general about what it looks like in terms of vocabulary and aunt Neil begins mirroring them. So we have like an opening sequence of mimicry of like gendered mimicry in a certain way, except for the fact that the mapping of gender is not clear in the form itself. Mm -hmm. And then within the film, there are excerpts of a contemporary proscenium sort of summers in the round performance, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where aunt Neil is, is taking what, I can see Marley on the ground. There's tape Mm -hmm. on the ground. I'm like, I know where I am. I'm in that Western studio space. The vocabularies of the Lenguer are visible. There's costuming that is visible. And then there's deconstructed costuming of just like shorts or like hot pants. So we have what would be very loosely called a fusion. Aunt Neil, as someone who just completed... An MFA,
1: their equivalent of an MFA in dance, who is very much grounded within this kind of international discourse of modern dance. Like I feel like I see similar movement vocabularies and styles like across
0: many different geographic regions and spaces, you know. The legibility kind of like smacked me in the head, (laughs) right? Where I was (laughs) suddenly uh like in another space, but with the framing, having so much knowledge and framing from you. Is so helpful because then again, the the desire to project, even to project a term like drag, which never yeah. comes up. You never use that word. At least you didn't in your talk. Can yeah. you say something about that? Like, is that a term that exists yeah. in the Indonesian so-
1: context? It is, I talk about like drag adjacent work because I'm hesitant to say drag when it's not used by the performers. A part of that I think has to do with a sense of how drag is taken up within like Western scholarship. It's interesting that you brought up Shakespeare because I've been kind of like grappling with how cross gender as a term comes up in like early modern theater studies. Cross gender as a term that comes up, particularly for Shakespeare's Scholars, it assumes a cross and a return. And I get that feeling from most of the scholarship that I've engaged with around drag is that there's always still this underlying assumption of becoming something else, but that's not who one is, that you are performing as a character, potentially a heightened version of oneself, but there is always a sort of return to a stasis. For many of the performers that I work with, that's not necessarily the case. I think something like cabaret sometimes feels like a better framing term for me, that it's not about presenting an alternate of oneself to an audience, particularly for the self-identified Wadia that I work with who do these club genres. So I refer to lip sync because that's the form that most of it takes. Lip syncing along with a track, there's a sense of essentially being Wadia on stage and being Wadia off stage. There is a term that. Aunt Neil introduced me to Nyawiji, N-Y-A-W-I-J-I, that is specifically this concept of like fusing identities within the Linger tradition so that you fuse the masculine and the feminine, the male and the female. And that's something that Aunt Neil is really, really interested in exploring as like a foundational necessity of the Linger performer and the choreographies that are associated with the Linger performer. The idea of holding both is at the essence of what Aunt Neil is trying to sort of work within and through in their practice at large, which is very much about blending the traditional with the sort of modern dance vocabulary, but also like personally as well. So that for something like drag, one could say, you know, you see Aunt Neil put on the kine and the kabaya, the, um, the sarong, the top, the wig, which has a specific name that I just cannot think of right now, that there is this sort of costuming, right, which can seem like drag, but it's not about putting that on and then returning to something else. It's about that as representative of a type of fusion within identification, within modes of movement, vocabularies of movement within the form. I think also this slippery reckoning or trying to kind of uncover what the origins of this dance are, in many ways, like something like Bharatnatyam, which traces its movements back to temple carvings, but is like very much a modern form. Like it was created as like a specifically modern form for female dancers that connect to these sort of origins, but that's very much about presenting a certain type of South Indian cultural form to the world. That's the case for so many what are considered court or folk traditions across Indonesia. We're really dealing with like this kind of palimpsest of many, many different influences and agendas and histories and narratives of origin that settle and
0: sort of cement into these forms. You said in the talk that there is no stable embodiment for waria. And then Mm -hmm. you said, but their performances are shaped by specific aesthetic and social scripts within their historical and social context. So there's a way that Judith helped us know, and other people mm-hmm. helped us know. We know there's no stable embodiments, period. Gender is a construct, and all of that. But what you said about Aunt Neil wanting to hold the both, but even the binaries may not be in the origin. It does sort of elude language, it feels like to me, what's going on in this context and with this artist and with the artists you look at, that there's some way that even in the way you talked about, well, Lenguer was, you know, it was social and folk. Like we, in the West, we tend to separate social and folk. Like social dance is what you do in the clubs and folk dance is what you do in a circle mm. and street yeah. dance is what you do in the street. <laughs> And then you could put all of it on the stage, either presenting it spectacularly, like in a quote unquote ethnic dance festival, or mm-hmm. by merging it or deconstructing it or stripping it of its like accoutrement. And so that was what was mm-hmm. interesting about Aunt Neil's piece too, is that you have the accoutrement, which you just described, the costuming, yeah. and then you have the removal of costuming, but it is not in an effort to say, here's some originary truth. It seems to be like coexisting all the time. and Aunt Neil as an artist is, is navigating that. And you said it really beautifully too in the talk. You said, if we're going to use the word fusion, you didn't say it exactly like this, but you yeah. said, if, if that's the word that we, we want to use, because I think someone in the Q and A used it, mm-hmm. um, that there's like a contemporary or visual reference of a particular style of modern dance. And then there's a visual reference of heritage forms that in Aunt Neil's biography, those are intertwined And then, by extension, and you don't again, you don't say exactly Mm -hmm. this way. There's some search for or imagined belief in that that intertwining is originary. Yes, is that what I'm trying? Am I saying that in any way? Yeah, no, I think so. That
1: thinking about how the term cross gender gets used, in part, because it circulates a little bit within scholarship around some of the more well-known artists that I work with in Indonesia, that they do cross-gender dance or that a person that has been assigned female at birth dancing a prince character, that that is cross-gender in some ways, right? And where that begins to kind of break down a little bit is, and you referenced this a little bit earlier, which is this idea that the gender of a form has actually no attachment to the body of the person that is performing it. That some movements are feminine, some movements are masculine. And really this comes back to language that's less about masculine and feminine and more about refinement and coarseness. Yes. Is an ogre, you know, masculine or feminine? They're saying no, like an ogre is a coarse character. A demon is a coarse character and has a different vocabulary of movement. But, you know, one of the older dancers that I have worked with, who is unfortunately recently passed away, did this whole beautiful demonstration for me one night. Like her father was a court dancer, identifies as Wadia, was about 67 when we, uh, when we were interviewing, told me that she is sort of always identified as Wadia. Her family sort of always known. And a part of that is because her mother, when she was pregnant with her, um, with Ibu Sandra, Would take her to the court, um, to the Kraton, which is still in Yogyakarta, to watch her father dance. And that infused an influence for dance. Mm. And then, you know, when they started to learn dance, you know, Sandra told me, I'm only good at the female roles. Ever since I was little, that's what I identify with. I try to do masculine roles, can't do them, not any good at them. Right. And this is a person Uh, who was assigned
0: male. At, At birth. birth. Yes. Um, okay. But
1: who spent a great portion of their youth into their thirties performing as a woman. And then sort of only a little bit later. And I think this has a lot to do with national sort of emergences of like a Wadia discourse, right? Like remembering that Wadia is a term, not until the sixties who later in their older age, was practicing and teaching these like heritage sort of classical forms as wadiya. But, you know, who told me that like family knew, but when she was a dancer doing the Ramayana ballet at the big Borobudur temple that attracts a bunch of tourists, that no one knew that they were Wadia, that they were just like, quote unquote, the best female dancer in the company. And I think there's something really specific about Sandra saying, too, that she was practicing the formal forms, the court forms, that there's this legacy through their father who was like a dance master within the court, that an identification with these more refined forms allows for a shaping of a certain type of femininity for oneself that conversely being identified with the more street-based forms the more social dance based forms that a lot of the current street-based forms have their origins in that puts you a little bit closer to you know, the street to prostitution to identify with that type of movement vocabulary, that type of dance shapes a different type of femininity that was very much rejected by Sandra. Oh, um, Interesting. Okay. And so I think that there's something really specific about alt saying, okay, not only because I'm from Banyumas am I interested in lingaire you know we had to do dance lessons in elementary school so we learned all the regional dances but I felt this affinity for this dance but also because as Neil frames it there's a non sort of binary or a full acceptance of like a fusion of a binary at its origins Neil really presents a sort of like non binary Um, in the way that many elder, Gen Z, younger millennials do now. There's like that kind of aesthetic Mm -hmm. in their daily life, right? And is very much rejects any attempt to sort of pin down pronouns in that sense. Like it's just really uninterested in that. And even when I was asking about Da'aria, who's the older lingere teacher dancer that you saw in the film is this someone who identifies as wadia who is like basically the last surviving like maestro uh from this region of this form there was a refusal to even land on an answer for that mm. you know like i was asking okay when Daario was alive did they identify as wadia mm. Maybe it's, but no
0: answer. Yeah, I mean, which that. makes sense. It seems to make sense to me, especially if, as you say in the talk, that these artists are, you know, very consciously mobilizing this ambiguity and complexity as like mm-hmm. a way of visibilizing themselves and folks, right, who yes. are not mm-hmm. interested in those determinations. The movement is not gendered in the sense that it's not mapped onto sex. There's Mm -hmm. like, you're saying feminine movement might mean flowing. It might mean refined Coarse movement might mean like harsh. And that might, I mean, masculine movement might be harsh, but even that feminine masculine distinction doesn't really hold up because it doesn't matter what body is doing it. And yet on the other hand, there is a good way to move in a feminine manner and Mm -hmm. a not good way, right? What you were saying about the street prostitute association versus the court association. So it's kind of like trippy. It's uh-huh. like, there's like a hopefulness in terms of like, well, if these art forms can show and insist that movement isn't gendered, then maybe we can show and insist that nothing is gendered. Anybody yes. can do anything except for certain limitations on anatomy. And yet there's still social hierarchies. Oh, absolutely. So it's and like,
1: that's the nuance that's really easy to sort of get swept to the side is yes. that there's not only a sort of grappling with Javanese standards of like sociality, but that even those standards are very much aligned with specific ideas and interpretations of status and courtliness that don't translate across all of Indonesia. So for me, what's also so great and like so interesting about working with Wadia community is about working with GNC performers, is that oftentimes you're dealing with communities who are coming from these various other spaces within the archipelago, concentrating in these more like metropolitan spaces. You're getting people whose origins might be Bugis, whose origins might be Balinese or Lombok or from these other places who are all now concentrated and in in who are bringing those really specific cultural differences, even as they all sort of fall under the umbrella of like Indonesian culture. And I'll just back it up and say a lot of this has to do too with audience interaction. What gets you on the margins of like good and bad oftentimes has to do with like how one interacts With the viewer participant. And what I've noticed is that the further you are away from a participatory form of interacting with an audience, the more you move towards a refinement, the good ways of moving. And that I think is like really interesting. So that even Alt Neil taking this form, putting it in. the the Dutch dance festival or the Australian performing arts festival where this is being performed does something to the form itself to, to these sort of barriers of how bodies are perceived that are
0: doing these movements. When I was watching Aunt Neil, I started to think about the concept of realness. Mm -hmm. And then I realized based on what we just talked about today, that that doesn't seem like it's going to map onto this experience. For the very no. reason that there isn't the association to begin with between the body that does the movie. Absolutely. It's all
1: not realness. Everything about even in the most, quote unquote, feminine, courtly forms, that's about being as not real as possible. That's about being celestial. And it's Ugh. like origins. It's always about what one is putting on and imposing onto the body. And I'll just shout out really quickly. I think someone who talks about this really beautifully and specifically is Christina Sunardi um, is an ethnomusicologist talks about another East Javanese form where there's a sort of masculine feminine split, but very much talks about that not being mapped on to like the materiality of the body. But You know, within that costuming, you know, some men of a certain generation, when they would see these performers say even more beautiful than real women, because they pad appropriately, they move in different ways that it's always about a heightenedness. The realness was actually, I would say for Langeir, it's the interaction. And that is so much of what's been stripped out of the form. That's the realness. Ooh, that was a great way to end. I love you. This was amazing. Thank you. you. Thank you. This was, like, so helpful and so wonderful. Oh, good. All right. I'll talk to you
0: soon. Okay. Bye. DanceCast is an ODC theater production curated, written, and edited by Seema Belmar. That's me. With creative consulting from Chloe Zimberg and Sophie Lenanger, and additional support from Matt Shrimplin and Garth Grimble. Please subscribe and rate our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And tell your friends. You can find a transcript of this episode and all DanceCast episodes, replete with hyperlinks to related content, at odc.dance/stories. Until next time, dance on.